0: Hi there, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. This is going to be our final episode of 2022, and so I've got to start it off with a brief public service announcement reminding you that whatever joint you light up a few minutes before midnight on New Year's Eve is going to set the tone for your entire weed year in 2023. So make sure that you take some time now to source something very fragrant, very potent, and very special that you'll either want to share with your friends or your loved ones, or if you're just going to be under the blankets at home, firing one up, loner stoner style. You only get one chance to make a first impression on your new weed year. And please post with the hashtag first smoke of the year and also the hashtag great moments in weed history so our whole GMIWH community can join you and join each other in getting lit in 2023 and making sure that this is the year of our weed Dreams. Now, then, for this weeds episode coming to you on Weedness Day, as always, I am thrilled to welcome as our guest Bill Drake. That might not be a name that's immediately familiar to you, but if you love cannabis as much as I know you all do, and I do as well, we owe a huge debt to this individual because brrr, he wrote the first. Ever that we can find in the English language, in the Western idiom, uh, cannabis cultivation guidebook. This is going all the way back to 1970, a book called The Cultivator's Handbook of Marijuana. It was written by Mr. Drake, our guest. It was self-published, and it really changed the world. And this was all based on knowledge that he gained first by traveling around the world to some of the traditional cannabis cultivation communities in places like Morocco, Colombia, and Mexico. And then he, He ended up in Oregon himself, at first as a cultivator, and then as somebody who wrote down this incredibly important knowledge and shared it at a time when the homegrown movement in the United States was just getting started when the breeding of cannabis strains from these land races all over the world into our modern hybrids was just getting started. And as you're going to hear in this episode, he went through a lot to make this hidden and obscured knowledge available to people, including the FBI, hassling him personally, following him around, printing presses, canceled their orders after FBI agents came to their office and uh, threatened them with legal action. But... This book became an underground sensation the next year in 1971. He followed it up with the Connoisseur's Book of Marijuana. Looking at it now from the smoker's perspective, it's an incredible ride. This is somebody, obviously, who uh, helped to invent the job that I have now, writing about weed. And it was uh, both illuminating and thrilling and, you know, a little bit terrifying to hear about what it was like. To write about this plant back then when there was no such thing as medical cannabis laws anywhere in the country. Every single cannabis plant was 100% illegal and the feds were out to get anybody trying to help people access this plant. When I got started in this game... 20 years ago, it really seemed like things could go either way. We were at the beginning of this legalization era, but we were also seeing federal raids in places like California that had their own state laws. And I've kind of seen it through to this moment now where Still, too, too, too many people, unfortunately, even in this year, 2023, that we're looking forward to, are going to be arrested for this beneficial plant, but we also really do see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's getting easier every year to envision a world where everybody has access to this plant, where no one is punished for choosing a medicine that is safe and effective, or simply wanting to get high. So, I gotta say kind of never been a better time to write about this plant, to create media about this plant, to share the good news about this plant, and I'm going to put up a little trial balloon. I I gotta say, I'm looking for some new ventures and adventures in the coming new year, and one of the ideas and opportunities that's been presented is that I could host a writing retreat at a working cannabis farm in Northern California, and I'm just trying to uh, put a line out there early and see what the interest might be in spending four or five nights at a beautiful, organic cannabis farm with all the infrastructure to host a writing retreat. I'm talking about accommodations, farm fresh meals, getting to interact with the plants, going on little side trip and adventures all in the heart of weed country. No details right now. I simply would love to hear from a few people who might be interested in something like that, and that would inspire me to go ahead and put this up online and offer a very limited opportunity to spend a few days learning about the plant enjoying the culture together and having a writing retreat, whether that means you want to write specifically about cannabis or you've got that novel you've always wanted to start, you've got that screenplay idea in mind, you're interested in a career in journalism. Uh, You know, I've been (laughs) making a living, sometimes more than others, writing for about 20 years. I love to help people on that journey. And uh, I would be there every step of the way to work with a very small group of people if we can make this writing retreat happen. If that sounds interesting to you, please get in touch at gmiwhpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on any of the great moments in weed history, social media, send me a DM on Instagram or on Twitter. And, you know, if I hear from even a few people who are seriously interested, I will get all the details together and let's see if we can make something really cool happen. I would certainly love to do it. And I'm going to go even a little bit bigger on this uh, end of the year episode. As those of you who have been listening to the secret sessions for Patreon supporters only know, I've been working on a new book. It's my first book in about five years. I'm uh, in the early stages, but I'm looking in February to spend some time having a writing retreat of my own and I'd love to go somewhere out in the woods or by a beach or somewhere tranquil to have some time to write and think and really put the work in on this book and hey a lot of people listen to this podcast, maybe you've got a good line on a place where I could go for a few weeks or even a month and immerse myself in the writing process. If you know of a cabin, if you know of a yurt, if you know of a place that would be ideal for this purpose, hey, drop me a line. I'd really love to hear from you. And of course, if you don't have a uh, villa in Tuscany or a uh, beach hut in Jamaica or a cabin in Northern California to share, you can still support this podcast by going to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and supporting us via Patreon You can put in as little as a dollar. You can put five on it for a little more. You can get my most recent book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, signed personally to you and mailed to your address. And you'll also get the video version of this podcast. You'll see me holding up the joint. I'm going to light. Before we get to this week's interview right now, you can go back in the archives and watch video versions of many, many of the episodes of Great Moments in Weed History we've done in the past, and you can have the satisfaction of knowing that you are not just a part of this community, but you are actively supporting our efforts to preserve cannabis history. You can get high on history with us every weed On Weedness Day and hold your head high. And yes, let's let that be the weed pun for this episode, the last weed pun of the year. And yeah, let's really make some cool shit happen in the new year. As I'm sure you've noticed, and you could say it with me, Abdullah remains on hiatus. Uh, for this episode. We're going to be hearing from him in the new year. We're going to have some more info about the future of great moments in weed history, but I do want to assure you all that this show and this community is not going anywhere. You can count on us every weed on Weedness Day to either have a new episode in the podcast feed or a secret sesh for our Patreon supporters only. Now, as we get prepared to talk to a true legend in weed publishing, Bill Drake, somebody who, as I said, has contributed not just to the information about growing this beautiful plant that we love, but about consuming it and understanding the history of different varietals going back to the tie stick of the 70s, the land races of antiquity. All the way up to our modern hybrids. I am very, very excited to share this episode with you. Uh, But uh, I'm hearing that you, yes, you, dear listener, might not be ready to roll. I've certainly got this joint supplied to me by a patreon supporter of this program ready to go for this episode i've got a multitude of different weed strains i'm considering for that hashtag first smoke of the year but if you're not rolled up and ready for this episode right now it's cool you know what i'm gonna say all you have to do is hit pause And use that time to roll a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bog or to endabulate a dab or to eat a bunch of edibles, rub some topicals all over you, or just get settled into a comfy chair with your favorite headphones. Because when you are ready to roll and you hit unpause, we'll be ready for another GREAT Great MOMENT moment IN in WEED weed HISTORY! (music) Bill Drake, we are so honored to have you with us. Welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. We do tend to start all of these journeys with the same question, which is, when did cannabis first enter your life? In the fall of 1959. Wow. So that's, uh, that's almost like the beatnik era of weed smoking. Well, I was, I was
1: too young to be a beatnik and too old to be a hippie by the time hippies came around. So, you know, I kind of missed both. I was, I was in between 1959 60 were weird years.
0: Where did this cannabis find you?
1: I found it a uh, couple of uh, guys in the dorm uh, at Cornell, or uh, I was a freshman, uh, were from uh, New York and uh, we'd smoked a couple of joints uh, uh, early on in the freshman year, uh, huddling outside in the, in the woods. And uh, they decided it was time to go down to the city and, uh, and uh, score uh, some weed. And we drove down in Kenny Rubin's car uh, that he uh, he had brought to school. And we went into some pretty interesting places in New York and came back with a half key of pressed Jamaican weed. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of things.
0: Pressed Jamaican weed. So this is what was sometimes called brick weed. It was uh, compressed down. Yeah, trash compactor. (laughs) and i'm assuming there was more than a couple stems and seeds in there
1: almost 50 percent, man as you yeah right yeah and probably a lot of coca-cola to hold it together
0: (laughs) and was this uh did you meet the person that you acquired it from uh on that trip as had somebody given you uh, a hookup to explore you know i i stayed in I stayed in the car while Kenny went in. I
1: it was too it was too scary, man. <laughs> it was all the paranoia that you can imagine. And of course that was 1959, right? If you got busted with a joint, there you know, there are people still in prison in places like Texas uh from that era.
0: So you you got you get back to Cornell, you have about how much? How much half did a key. you? Half a key. Half, half a kilo. So for our uh yeah, what's kilo to one point one pounds? 1.1 pounds. <laughs> so Roughly. I assume that you are uh, either, you and your friend are set for quite a while, or you become very popular among a uh, subset of people at, at Cornell. What was it like to have a pound of weed on a college <laughs> campus in 1959?
1: Well, we weren't on the campus. Uh, uh One of our friends had an apartment in College Town, and so that's where things happen. and I wasn't a part of any uh, uh, dealing. I just enjoyed it. I was a friend uh, kind of along for the ride, uh, a couple of the other guys who uh, were set themselves up to earn a little extra tuition money. but it was a it was a heavy scene. I mean there, people that was the year those were the years when you started when you first encountered uh, marijuana, you it was like, oh wow and you know all kinds of oh wow experiences. And, uh, I think the paranoia really added to it. <laughs> it was scary as hell. <laughs> Marijuana was the, uh, uh the uh, killer weed, literally. A lot of people believed it. Uh, the assassin of youth. People truly believed that, uh, you know, one toke of weed and you were gone.
0: And where were you getting, uh, a counter-argument. What, what made you believe that cannabis could be a good thing?
1: Well, that's a really good question in the, in, in a short context. I, I was a military kid, born in 1941, just before Pearl Harbor. I grew up in a, in a military environment. I was at Cornell on a full ROTC Naval Scholarship. I was going to become a fighter pilot, graduating in 1963, which would have put me guess where. You ask what sort of revealed to me that all of the lies was that first toke. And then, you know, the subsequent couple of weeks of discovery, which were really, it's like in everybody's life has had the first few weeks of discovery, you know. Poetry suddenly made real sense. Uh, I I was thinking great thoughts, which, of course, were total bullshit. But at the time, I was feeling like revelations were occurring. Okay.
0: So that means that our whole solar system be like one tiny atom in the fingernail of some other giant being oh
1: this is too much that means
0: that one tiny atom in my fingernail could could be one little tiny universe
1: Could I buy some pot from you? It was only many years, after many years of smoking uh, cannabis that I began to use it as a tool. So uh, not not everybody uh, finds their mind sharpened and more inquisitive with cannabis. Different people have different. Some people simply are moved to dance. Some people do art. Some people hit the couch and eat. I mean, everybody's different. Uh, for me, it made me it, it kind of made me think.
0: I think I tend to do all of those things in, a, in one night. But <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I was Johnny One Note. <laughs> when, when did you move from sort of gaining an understanding of cannabis to really zeroing in and saying, this, this is going to be an important part of my life? One of my turning points
1: was I was in Peace Corps in West Africa in the middle 60s. I was able to make, you know, I made some friends in San Francisco and, and took some uh, very nice, what every, what we called and what turned out to be Oaxacan purple seeds with me to Chad. And our our project was an agricultural project. We had a really wonderful uh, garden area down by the lake and I started some plants and they were uh you know, it turned out that the the people of, of in the village knew all about cannabis. <laughs> I mean, it, this was a, on Lake Chad, and it was a, the Trans-Saharan caravan route, so there'd been hash stuff going back and forth across the Sahara for thousands of years. But we all had kind of fun with the, with the plants. We, but they didn't ever get to the harvest point because it, at about oh, 10 weeks or so. Um, a, an, a rogue army unit came through the village. It was the beginning of the Chadian revolution, not in that village, but across the whole region. And we wound up evacuating and, and uh, you know, everything kind of went to shit. But uh, for about 10 weeks, we had a lot of fun growing Oaxacan purple
0: on the shores of Lake Chad. And it sounds like, well, you know, for, as far as anyone knows, those plants may have made it. You just were forced to evacuate. Yeah, there was no reason they wouldn't have made it. Now, did you have uh, experience cultivating the plant prior to this trip? These were uh, bag seeds, essentially, then. These were bag seeds, yeah.
1: I'll tell you the attitude of people toward the cannabis plant was, oh, yeah, we know what that is. This was an area of the world where, uh, for example, you know, people travel a thousand miles with just a pocket full of dates, you know. And so uh, hash, hash and dates (laughs) – if you're going to cross the Sahara for 30 days on camel, you know, it's probably a pretty good little trail mix.
0: Absolutely. I would, uh, Maybe suggest people check out our episode about majun, which is an edible yes. uh, form of cannabis, and, yes. and that gets into that whole history of the old uh spice trail and the um you know the trade in, in, in cannabis, as you say, was in hashish because it was uh, much more compact and easy to transport and uh very definitely uh enjoyable to consume as well. So so this was uh this was your first experience growing the plant unfortunately uh, I, I, I'd like to believe that maybe the descendants of that Oaxacan <laughs> cannabis uh, let's, hope. let's live hope. on today but you you were not there for the full process when's the next time um, you're able to try uh, cultivating cannabis yourself
1: well in in uh, 1968 uh, I my then wife and I moved to uh, Oregon, to Eugene. I had enrolled as a as a as a graduate student in anthropology. I had been very interested in growing, and I'd gotten some seeds, so I began growing. Like there were quite a few people actually around Eugene in those days growing. That is the late '60s, and there were a lot of people getting busted. And a good friend of mine uh, had a small grove. And uh, was actually raided and shot and killed. And, and it, so I did, my wife was pregnant and I um, thought that was probably a good time to uh, stop growing. And I was sitting with a good friend uh, one day uh, during that period uh, on, on the banks of the Mackenzie, smoking a joint complaining to her about not being able to grow anymore. And she said, well, why don't you write a book? You know, you're always talking about, you're always telling other people, you know, answering questions for people and stuff. So I just did. I went back to my apartment and in about a week I had typed out the, uh, uh, the draft of the book. Uh, there's a whole, I wrote the whole story of it on, uh, on, my, uh, on my blog uh, called The Backstory. Um and it's very much too long to tell here and I I know I'm rambling so I apologize.
0: No no this is first of all this is what we're here for this is fascinating and um you know really uh both weed and history so everything we're here uh to talk about <laughs> living history you know living history. still living. <laughs> yeah. Um but let's prior to the book help 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 us understand what was the what was the cannabis that was available to you at the time and how were you able to find in in this period uh cannabis that would grow in Oregon
1: uh Humboldt County. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer. That was the uh, from Oaxaca to Humboldt was like in my this is just my observation. I'm sure there's far better research history, but but The first, I I personally knew of a number of people who brought Oaxacan seed to Humboldt for its purple characteristics, as well as for its wonderful Turk profile and everything else. And uh, I knew about those guys. So I went down and was, got some seeds, started there. It was that, I mean, it wasn't any big deal. It was pretty simple. Everybody knew that Humboldt County was where it was happening. (laughs)
0: I've I've heard that around as well. Uh, so Oaxaca is of course a region of Mexico, and uh, a long cannabis tradition there. When we talk about sinsemilla, just uh, growing cannabis without uh, seeds right. uh, by separating the males and the females, that's a Spanish word because that's where that technique uh, originates from. And that's and, where I learned it. Oh, you went, so you went down to Mexico. Please tell us about that experience.
1: In those years, I was spending like half my time in Mexico. I spoke fluent Spanish then, and and I I had just come back from Africa. And I had then, after being in Africa, I had taught school in the Caribbean. So I was really into moving around the world. I didn't have much money, but in those days you could travel with that much money. But anyway, that's, those are all long stories, old man stories.
0: We're here for this. <laughs> oh, you okay. we're, in, were in Morocco, uh, you know, one of the cradles of cannabis cultivation. You know, a place with a with a cannabis growing culture that's older than almost any wine culture. Um, and a place, um, you know, known for its hashish. Right. Uh, what were your experiences there with 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 cannabis and and particularly with its cultivation?
1: I, I fell in love with the, that blonde Moroccan hash. I mean, that's just—it's like smoking pure flour. It is the purest flower of any, in my opinion. Uh, I, I mean, I love the gummy black stuff, but I but I adore the. Light, high notes of of Moroccan hatch.
0: and this was uh, made in a in a sift method. Yes, exactly. We look at you know 1964 as the year that the United Nations, in essence, created a global drug war. You know, at the behest of the United States, at the behest of uh, the drug warriors here, and and the J. Edgar Hoover era of American. Uh, fascism round one is 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 gearing up after world war ii when you were in morocco was it still a very open thing that you could yes walk into a cafe D- describe that experience for people
1: it was kind of like it was, it was similar uh, to amsterdam a few years many years later really but uh, you had the same feeling that uh, the authorities didn't like it uh, but uh they didn't forbid it either it was it was t- in the in the way the dutch do it was tolerated and the fact that we were talking about a thousands of year old not tradition but part of life you know it's not a tradition it's a part of life <laughs> it would be like oh sorry no more coffee <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that, stay home that day.
1: Right, if, we've, <laughs> we've, we've decided that coffee
0: is bad. Yeah. If they ever <laughs> ban coffee, don't go outside. That's exactly right. An experience that I actually had in Amsterdam. Um, used to work at an event called the Cannabis Cup there. and ah, yes. Uh, somebody threw a Moroccan-themed party at a Moroccan restaurant uh, they were Moroccan descendant people. I think they were actually uh, had immigrated from Morocco uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Amsterdam because of the freedom there. And, and you know, a lot of the uh, hashish that you would find in the coffee shops, especially back then, was uh, coming from Morocco. But we're, were at this party. And I suddenly, you know, I'm got a. Uh, everybody knows what the hookah is. Uh, you know, you've got a, the tube, and I'm sort of leaning back on a pillow, uh, a, a circular sort of pillow thing that everybody's sitting on, and they brought around little plates of food that you could just pick up with your fingers, and the music is just this like 45 minute long jam, and I realized. This is just weird, you know. Like <laughs> everything around this, you know, obviously not diminishing the complexity of another culture, but you realize yeah. this experience is informed by hashish, not the other way around.
1: Absolutely beautiful and a beautiful description of it too. I, I the, my second book was the Connoisseur's Handbook of, of Marijuana, uh, uh, which, and it was all about. That experience, as it has been described by artists and writers and musicians of the uh, uh, 1800s and and, and early 19, very early 1900s, mostly the 1800s, I have a a love for lost and hidden knowledge. That's my entire life.
0: I think we should we share that. And uh, I do want to get. Uh, oh, yes. To yes, yes. Oaxaca. Um, okay, back to Oaxaca. Yes. So this is now after the after the uh, experience in Africa. Yes. And you are in Mexico, and you you said that is where you learned how to grow with the sinsamia technique. Uh, tell me about that that whole experience.
1: Uh, I didn't go into the fields with the cultivators and learn it. I, that, I I learned it in a bar in Oaxaca. <laughs> talking to guys who you know uh i i i i knew how to just be a regular person with people in other cultures and and uh was able to make connections on a human level with people that i was able to get them talking to me
0: but this was at a time when in the united states Uh, The vast, vast, vast majority of cannabis being sold commercially was full of seeds, full of stems. Fertile seeds. Yeah, right. And in essence, the Sensomia technique is by removing the male plants uh, from your grow, you uh, prevent the fertilization of the female plants and that causes them to continue to produce more and more resin so this was really for a for a relatively simple technique in its uh theory it had a profound effect on the quality of cannabis uh that becomes available and really almost creates the connoisseur market uh cannabis. And, you know, I think now we're up to about 1970. You are in Oregon. And this book, uh, you said, uh, took a few weeks to write. What was that process like? And what were your expectations at the time?
1: Well, I didn't really have any expectations. And I write, I write because I enjoy writing. And I love it when people tell me that they've enjoyed it or they've benefited from it or whatever. But as you could tell, if you saw my finances, I,
0: <laughs> I'm a writer too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I write books cause I like, write, like writing books. And if people like to read them, great. And a lot of people read cultivators handbook. I mean, it, it, uh, and it was ripped off by uh, a number of different uh, entities and, and uh, so, but altogether, I've it sold for me probably a million and a half copies over the years. But that, to me, when you divide that by fifty, I think you know. <laughs> and and I'm not talking about books that I've seen the royalties from. I'm talking about books that I know have sold. Um, anyway, uh, what that means to me is that a million and a half people over the years have have read what I tried to offer them and have. Uh, I and many have said that they've benefited and appreciated it and that's my reward frankly and you're a writer so you know exactly what I'm saying I'd rather have people telling me they love my book than get a check from a publisher I'd love to have both but I'll take one over
0: the other <laughs> and you can support this podcast on patreon by going to great moments in help us keep the lights on quick little plug and please <laughs> do please do that folks did you, at the time, were there other guidebooks that you knew of? Was there other sources of this information uh, available? Or were you really um, starting with a, with a blank piece of paper?
1: No, there weren't any others that I was aware of. And, and, and I think historically there haven't been any others. So anyway, so I put together what I had learned over the last, uh, let's say, really five or six years starting in Africa. Uh, from talk, mainly from talking to people and also from doing uh, library research, um, and I just said, "Hey, I can just put together a simple guidebook." And I I made a few connections, like I made the, I made the connection between ultraviolet light and and and, and potency, simply by realizing that the, there has to be a purpose for the plant to produce the molecules that it produces, and I I was able to find some science that said that. Uh, The THC molecule uh, traps, essentially, ultraviolet light. And I thought, aha, (laughs) that makes sense. (laughs) Let's protect my seeds by making a chemical trap for ultraviolet light. And so I thought, wow, so it's trapped starlight that's getting me high.
0: And and that was an, oh, wow. You know? (laughs) I, I'm I'm saying, oh wow, now! Uh, but I we got to imagine in 1970 there were a few far out mans, far uh, out, far fucking around. out man, <laughs> far fucking yeah, out.
1: yeah. And it and it was that. See, those that, that that was all
0: fun. It was just all fun. And and now you know another uh, big interest of 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 ours here is is independent media and you know how this. Counter narrative about cannabis uh, managed to, you know, take on the dominant culture's propaganda and spread the truth about cannabis during these times. So, from when you had a finished manuscript, um, you know, not to shock our younger listeners, of which there are many. You didn't put it on the internet. You didn't make a TikTok uh, to let everybody know. I would imagine, um, you know, the big publishers in New York City were not... Uh... They were horrified, yes. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> how did you get this book to the people? Uh, there was a wonderful uh,
1: uh, uh, underground paper in Eugene called the Eugene Auger. So the, I went to the Eugene Auger and, and, and uh, said I need to get this book book printed and we make it was a collective and they uh, agreed that uh, they would help me and they we had a they had an old Kachunka press and uh, you know so we we printed the book laid it ha- laid it out uh printed it and then collated it by hand we had a pizza party wound up with a friend of mine uh, taking the first 500 books on the back of an old flatbed truck to, down to san francisco Uh, getting stopped in Shasta County, California, uh, by a deputy who uh, called in everybody. They looked at what was in the truck. Uh, A lieutenant uh, came over, kind of put us through a little bit of shit, and then said, I can't bust you guys for uh, writing a book. We'd gone through who'd written it and what it was about. He said, but you wouldn't be stupid enough to be driving through my county with a load of uh, how-to-grow marijuana books and smoking a joint, would you? (laughs) And we said, oh, no, sir, not us. Uh, he said, well, that's, that's good, because, that's good uh, because if you were, I'd have to uh, take you in. Uh, no, sir, no, sir. Uh, he let us go, but uh, every county from then on down to San he said, I'm going to call ahead and let people know you're coming just so that you'll be safe. And later on that day, I mean, uh, we went to the Tides bookstore in, San, in Sausalito, uh, Herb Beckman, uh, uh, we carried it in. He took a look at it. He says, how many you got in the box? And he said, I'll take it. People started buying it, and he said, he picked up the phone and he called uh, City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, and he's and blah, 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 and he said, he said go in there and, and talk to Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Let us pray. Our Father, whose art's in heaven, hallowed be thy name, unless things change. Thy wigdom come and gone, Thy will will be
0: undone on earth as it isn't heaven. Give us this day our daily dread, at least three times a day, and forgive us our trespasses
1: on love's territory, for thine is the wigdom and power and glory. Oh, man! So we <laughs> drove across the, the Golden Gate Bridge, saying, "Lawrence fucking Florida, the Getty, we're going to go talk to him." <laughs> we did, and uh, you know he uh, showed the book around the the, uh, the uh, coffee shop, and uh, and anyway, and he sent us down to Palo Alto to talk to the Whole Earth Truck Company, which became the Whole Earth Catalog. They ordered every book we had left. So we went back up to I went back up to Oregon and. Uh, then there's a long story about finding an actual printer for the book, which involves the FBI following me around and intimidating the various printers until I finally found a, a wonderful right-wing conservative uh, newspaper publisher on the coast of Oregon who, who's, who whose views on freedom and liberty and the Constitution I totally agreed with. And so I went down there with my book and I said, hey, the FBI is intimidating printers. They tell me I can't print this book. And, and uh, he called up his friend, the agent in charge in Portland, and <laughs> And what was going to happen? And he printed the book, and kind of went from there. Uh, a lot of people helped me along the way, and uh, it, it was a, it was a very fun ride. And I wound up being a single father a year after the book was year and a half after the book was first printed. So I didn't have any time or inclination to be a, 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 a counterculture cannabis hero. I was a, I was a single father, and I needed a support network. So I wound up oddly enough in texas which is where i had friends that's the only place i could go as a as a single dad in 1971 it was the only place i could find uh, shelter from the storm so i went there and that was not, uh, so i was out of the loop from that point on
0: well i, I do want to note uh for our listeners you know you talked about finding your earliest allies to print this in the underground press movement of oh, the yeah. era and we have a two-episode story in this podcast about Tom Fassad, who was the founder of High Times Magazine, but prior to that was a big part of this underground press movement, and the war on drugs, and particularly the war on cannabis, was used as a pretext to raid these publications, to hassle the people who worked at them. This was all coordinated uh, by the FBI. There's an excellent book called smoking typewriters where you can really delve into that history and i think the success of your book and 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 not to diminish the effort uh and the insight uh that went into it but to see how much demand there was for this information
1: right it was not a particularly good book i I have wished many many times that i could rewrite it (laughs) You know, something you do when you're young that follows you through your life?
0: (laughs) Oof, yes. (laughs) (laughs) We live in this era now when sort of the uh, issue of free speech has been somewhat hijacked by these reactionary forces. But um, when we look back at what actual oppression of speech looks like in the modern era, it happened already. You know, the things that we say we're worried about, (laughs) this went from hundreds of underground newspapers uh, to a handful that were able to survive this uh, government uh, attack on them. Is that something that you ever felt directly, you know, after getting the book out, did you feel that you were under any kind of... uh, a a threat or surveillance from the government? And how did you uh, deal with that going forward?
1: Yes, and I ignored it. After I wrote Cultivator's Handbook of Marijuana, uh, Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone, the early Rolling Stone, the San Francisco Rolling Stone, the underground Rolling Stone, so to speak, approached me and asked me to write a a book on uh, uh, the the connoisseur side of cannabis.
0: What was the state of connoisseurship when you wrote the book, how did you educate yourself on that? And how have you seen connoisseurship uh, uh, and cannabis itself change since, since you wrote that first book?
1: Wow. Well, it's a complex series of questions that really go, I think, I, I think the, the best answer is that since cannabis is a flower, and, and since some flowers show tremendous variability in color, aroma appearance, taste, place in the ecosystem, all and many other qualities. An appreciation of cannabis is the equivalent of an appreciation of food, wine, beer, uh, sex, any of the pleasures of the the, uh, flesh. And it has the component of the pleasures of the spirit and the mind. I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir and I don't mean to preach but what what led me to, 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 to write the book was simply I, I want it was a it was a share it was a coffee table book it was a sharing of what others had written along with some stuff that I thought was worth sharing and in retrospect some of it wasn't bad and some of it was awful <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, the book was uh, published by uh, Rolling Stone uh, and and it wound up uh, becoming a uh, Simon & Schuster book. And uh, actually, it was, it was uh, designed by John Goodchild, who was the Beatles uh, uh, album cover designer. And he did a great job with the book. The Connoisseur's Handbook's been out of print for a long time. It, it's one of those things I hope someday it, it goes back into print.
0: Let me ask you this. When, when you wrote The Connoisseur's Handbook... Yeah. What were some of the varietals or strains that were sought out in that era of, I, I believe, still the early 1970s?
1: All of the, the cliché classics, uh, and, and that was really basically it. Acapulco gold, Michoacán red, uh, Oaxacan purple, Colombian gold. People were not into naming strains yet. Those were kind of generic popular names. When people started growing, of course, that's when people wanted to label their, you know. In the early days coming out of Northern California, there, there were growers whose flowers were carried a name. It wasn't their name, and it wasn't on a label. But people would say, hey, this is a bag of this or that. So to answer your question, when I wrote Connoisseur's Handbook in 1971, there was not much differentiation going on.
0: And these were still being, in essence, named for their place of origin, uh, because these are still by and large being smuggled into the United States— uh, from these places, and that's of course uh, bringing the seeds along with them that eventually led to the homegrown movement in uh, North America. But these are also uh, purebred sativa strains.
1: And I left out, I did leave out, totally left out Asian Asian cannabis at this point, which was started coming in with the Vietnam War. So I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I realized that I was giving a very kind of Eurocentric uh, uh, uh,
0: narrative there. And so this would be like the Thai stick, for example. Boy,
1: when those Thai sticks showed up, <laughs> little flowers on a stick. And where'd <laughs> these come from? What is it? And there were also uh, some friends of mine who, who went to Vietnam as, as GIs, uh, did bring back seeds and so forth. And a few of them began, began growing. And, you know, uh, anyway, so there was a lot of uh, uh, Vietnamese, Laotian, Thai, and even Burmese. The genetics coming out of, out of Southeast Asia have made a huge contribution, both in indica, uh, I guess you could say mostly in indica, and they, the kush that came out of Afghanistan was incomparable in some ways. So, you know, I, I again, I don't present myself as an expert. I'm an appreciator. But back to the connoisseur's handbook, at the time, there was not a lot of variability. Uh, if you were lucky enough to get some sense of me you did not ask where it, well you might have asked where it came from but you didn't say oh i don't want that i'm only <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't like there were jars on a shelf <laughs> yeah
0: I, I i have a joke that uh growing up i actually grew up in new jersey uh my dealer had two choices take it or leave it <laughs> and uh, that's, yeah that's beautiful I, I vastly preferred the take it uh, absolutely
1: it's like a, there, there's a, the odds of winning the lottery or 50 50 you either win <laughs> or you don't
0: <laughs> and so every once in a while a a meme will pop up online which is a picture of a high time centerfold of all these different kind of varieties that we've been describing um and it'll say in essence like look, this was considered the best weed in the 1970s. <laughs> and you look at it and it looks very scraggly and it looks oh, very- Oh, no, 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 no,
1: no, no, no. What,
0: what, what has happened is people have bred with these genetic lines for finishing quicker. They bred for appearance. They bred for uh, mold resistance. Smell. Smell. But they didn't 100%- uh, breed for effect. So I, I would just love to for you to speak to that, uh, having been uh, lucky enough to experience that era in cannabis, and I I know that you uh, still enjoy cannabis today. Please disabuse uh, younger viewers of 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 the notion that that you know this was not good cannabis to smoke.
1: You could start by saying that it was very clear whether you were getting. Uh, cannabis that had been grown at sea level or cannabis that had been grown in the mountains immediately clear uh, in terms of head effect so you can start there and in those days of course po- the the origins were always a question of he says she says you know uh, <laughs> here's some Colombian gold
0: I got to tell you, you walk into a dispensary now and it's not that much different. <laughs> You're
1: right. You're right. And it's the, it's the confidence with which the information <laughs> is presented and not the validity of the information.
0: <laughs> well, that's the world we live in. but
1: <laughs> Yeah. So, so you kind of knew. And, and you also it, you, you knew if you knew your, de- per- your dealers, a dealer j- rarely had more than one source. And that source rarely had more than one source. So, you know, there tended to not be these huge ch- chains. There tended to be little tentacles, like J. Edgar Hoover would describe them, uh, <laughs> or little roots by which things came. And you, because of, you, you kind of knew the higher up in altitude a plant was grown, the higher it got you. The lower in altitude, the more it locked you down. I mean, that's generalizing. Way too much, maybe, but those are the things you look for. You wanted, if you, if you wanted to get high, you wanted to get high. And if you wanted to get stoned, you wanted to get stoned. And it was kind of like two different groups. I bought two different kinds of dope.
0: How would you describe your, uh, relationship to cannabis now? And how did that evolve, uh, from, from the period when you were writing the books until now? How, how has that uh, co-relationship worked for you
1: first of all i do a pipe and a cup of coffee when i get up in the morning i have for probably well at least 30 or 40 years i've been smoking cannabis for longer than that but it's a i i use cannabis daily and and, and i gotta say i miss that wow experience when you haven't smoked for quite a while but recently living in oregon man there's just too much good weed around <laughs> <laughs> then there's my interest in it as a writer and a researcher and i find it a, a continually unfolding wonderful
0: uh topic that is wonderful uh wonderful to hear i have a final two-parter which is are you, are you able to grow cannabis now and do you have as a as a you know well pedigreed connoisseur at this point uh what, what if so what are you growing or if not what what of the modern strains uh do you personally enjoy well
1: at the the house where we lived previously uh i had a small garden and i grew uh i grew durban poison i just i love durban poison at this point i'm uh I, I, i'm not growing anything uh, I'm in touch with a lot of people who, uh, who are wonderful growers. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking to Todd McCormick, who you may know, and uh, I, I, I love uh, his perspective on growing and on cannabis genetics. In fact, I've written some stuff for his website. I, I, do, I, do, I do a lot of writing for Grow Magazine. I've begun to do some writing. Uh, I've written a couple of articles, one on uh, the role of magnets and electricity, in plant growth and the other uh, on the role of acoustics and music in plant growth and applying those uh, using uh, published science, applying those to uh, their potential as uh, uh, cannabis technique, cannabis growing techniques. So that's that's a head trip. That's if I had a greenhouse or if I had access to uh, growing, I, I would be stringing a low voltage uh, un, uninsulated DC wires among my plants along the root zones and I'd be uh, uh, playing uh, uh, Vivaldi uh, uh, to get rid of white flies, and I'd be doing all kinds of stuff like that. But what I'm trying to do is write about it, because I can't do it, and hope that other people will pick up on it and give it a shot, and then write about it and share what they've found.
0: Well, Bill, uh, this has been an amazing conversation taking us from Chad to Morocco to Oaxaca to Oregon. Um, Your books clearly uh, informed and inspired millions of people to grow uh, this plant particularly at a time of heavy, heavy repression of it, you know, in a way these are very revolutionary works and we certainly would not be living in a world uh, where this plant is being brought back into the fold and these laws against it are falling, uh, because of the effort and love of people such as yourself and could not, uh, be more appreciative of you and spending some time with us here at Great Moments in Weed History. I hope that we get a chance to, uh, have a puff together in real life uh, someday. But for now, if you would uh, maybe join me on the way out and just thank you so much for uh, being our guest.
1: Very, very nice to talk to you. I really appreciate you finding me and, 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 uh, and reaching out to me. And thank you all for listening.
0: Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon, you could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Bean a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.